Hello there and welcome back to Wayward on Witchfix. Uh, today I'm going to be reading chapters 22 and 23. The chapters are sort of the, the ending part of the book, which is what we're in now. Kind of got away from it a little bit. They're a bit long. So I apologise in advance if this episode is a lot longer than previous ones. Hopefully not as long as the last episode. You might remember a lot of dramatic shit went down. Basically, um, Michaela and Cray realised something was up with Sophia. They then went to finally check out the Bristol Coven and unfortunately found that Cray is not a real person. He is in fact a fetch designed by Sophia to bring in runaways that she can then initiate as witches. They're not fully sure about why that is, what that means, or what other meanings behind the 40 shades that are described in her exercise book. But um, it seems to relate to the idea that there are creatures from the astral that made their way here and therefore became known as the gods of ancient times in many different cultures. And uh, we shall build on that knowledge as the chapters progress. So without further ado, here is chapter 22 of Wayward. I wake up on the floor, my face sticky with blood and saliva. It takes me a while to get my arms and legs to cooperate, but eventually I get myself upright and wipe my mouth with my sleeve. It's truly dark now, and I realise it must be night outside. There's no light showing around the edges of the window grating. My mouth is caked in blood, and my throat is raw from screaming and coughing. Water. I need a drink of water right now. I get to my feet and take a step towards the door, stumbling over nothing because my legs are shaking. It's only at the door that I remember Cray. My head's so messed up that I can't think straight. Cray. I stumble across the landing into the room where the fetches are lying on the floor, or where they were lying on the floor. There's nothing that shows what they used to be, only bits of cloth and clothes and scatterings of sawdust. I can hardly see, but I kneel down where Cray's fetch was lying and feel around for the pieces of his clothes. It's no good, I can't see a thing. My eyes fill with tears. He's gone. He's really gone. I remember that his head is in the other room where Sophia died right in front of me. The whole coven is gone. I need you, I say to the pale flakes of sawdust, the shadows of cloth. Come back, please come back. Crawling around in the dark, what kind of witch are you? I freeze, though I know it's not a voice from inside the house. It's a voice in my head. A woman's voice, one I've heard before. Keridwen? There's no answer. But I sit back on my heels and try to pull myself together. Whether the voice is real or just my own messed up brain playing tricks with me, it's right. I'm not going to accomplish anything crawling around in the dark. The last thing I want to do right now is magic, but there's no other option. I have to find the pieces of Cray. have to find a way to bring him back. I summon my energy, only when I let my eyes fall closed, I don't see the seven rainbow-coloured chakras I've become used to. I see loads of white lights glowing under my skin, shifting around like the sun rays bouncing to the sea. Circling around my belly is a slightly larger red orb, twisting and turning like a shark. I know without counting that there are 39 white lights for the lives of the witches that I absorbed from the blood Sophia was hoarding. The red energy must be that of the thing that was possessing her, and it makes me sick to look at it. When I try to draw up energy, all the lights glow brighter, and I can see them burning inside me, the same heat I felt when I lifted my hand to incinerate Sophia. It feels wrong, but it's all I have. I focus and raise my hand to direct the energy into a glamour. Maybe I can get the lights to work that way. The candle I dropped the last time I was in the room rolls across the floor and bumps my leg. Well, that's better than nothing. As I look at it, the candle writes itself and the wick ignites. Candles all around the room. Candles that weren't there moments ago. Light themselves, filling the room with light. I've never done anything like that before, 
or seen anyone else at the coven do it. We'd always lit candles with matches and lighters. Fire wasn't something you could just snap into existence by thinking of it. At least, that's what I'd thought. Maybe the power I have now is different, stronger. Maybe it can help me put Cray back together. There are shreds of the fetches everywhere, and I know that if there's nothing left of the flesh and blood Cray, that the others must be gone too, without a trace. Sirens blare outside and I jump. They're not right outside, but close enough to remind me that I'm trespassing in a building with blood all over the floor of one of its rooms. Not to mention all over me and my clothes. I need to leave as soon as I can. There's no hope of gathering up all the pieces. There are too many and I've got no way of carrying them all. My hands shake as I look through them for the crystals that Sophia used for their eyes. They have to be important. I find all but one of them, including the one still sewn to the head of Cray's double in the other room. With the stones in one pocket and the fabric face folded in another, I pick up the blue exercise book. There's blood on the cover. It's seeped into the pages, but I can still read the writing. I put it inside my coat and go downstairs. The candles snuff themselves out behind me. Glamour. I pause at the bottom of the stairs and swallow down a startled shout. It's Keridwen, I'm sure of it. But she doesn't seem in the mood to answer me when I call her name again. I reluctantly pull up more of that burning energy and glamour myself, getting rid of the blood on my clothes and face. It's only as I alter the look of my bloody t-shirt that I remember my wounds. But there's nothing under the blood. No stab wounds, not even any scabs or scars. I climb up on a box and crawl out of the basement window into the freezing night air. I have to get away from here, back to the house, to Wayward. I need to read the grimoire all the way through and find a way to put Cray and the others back together. The streets are mostly deserted until I get to the main road, where people are still hustling along, loaded with bags of shopping. I get the time from the big clock in Cabot shopping centre. Almost ten. While lying on the bloody floor, I'd lost almost seven hours. Still shaking on my feet, I try to avoid the loud music from the Christmas market and the bright lights of the main street. Every time someone comes within a metre of me, I want to shove them away. The Christmas lights swim and blur in front of me. At the bus station, I go to the toilets and wash my face in the grubby sink. Even though my skin looks clean, the water is red when it runs down the plug hole. I stoop and wash my mouth out with cool, metallic water. On the bus back to Bath, I rest my head against the window and close my eyes. I don't want to be on a juddering bus with a few shoppers trying to get home, or the drunk guy smacking his lips while he leans against the handrail. I just want to be curled up in bed with Cray, safe from the dark and the cold. My stomach twists. If I can't find the right spell, I'll never see him again. It's getting light by the time I arrive at Bath bus station. There's a sleeping bag wrapped shape huddled in a doorway beside the all-night cafe across the street. On a bench in the station, a girl in a tiny black dress is leaning heavily against her friend, whose head is hanging over the back of the seat. Their legs are blotchy with cold. There's a half-hour wait for the next bus to campus. I'm exhausted, but I can't face sitting down and being alone with my thoughts. There's nothing open apart from the cafe where I met Cray, and I know that going in there will only make me feel worse. I pace around the station instead, avoiding the scattered remains of a takeaway burger and shards of broken bottle. Pigeons skitter around on their clubbed feet. I take the grimoire out and flip through, keeping it out of sight, though I doubt either of the girls will notice. I already know from a quick look on the bus that there is no spell in there to give a fetch human form, let alone the memories and feelings that Cray had before Sophia disposed of him. My only hope is the grimoire back at the house, in Sophia's room. I stuff the book back into my coat and go to the front of the station to check the time on the digital clock. A newspaper's been left on the floor, torn out by the wind. It takes me a moment to recognise my own school picture on the front page. It's the one from last year, and I know that I was stoned at the time. I look it. The headline is in huge block capitals. Michaela, come home. I realise that the article underneath must be what mum was working on when I astral projected back home. It's a letter. To me. Dear Michaela, I hope that you see this letter. 
and that when you do, see how much your dad and I love you and want you to come home. I know we were angry with you and we said things that must have hurt you a lot, but we only reacted that way because we were worried about you. I'm asking you, if you can, please come home or phone us today. I promise you will understand whatever it is you need to tell us. We love you and we just want you home with us. Love, Mum and Dad. The paper explodes in my hands, tiny flaming pieces of blackened type fluttering to the ground. I drop it with a tiny shriek. I hadn't even been trying to do that. I watch the fire consume my picture. The two girls on the bench remain oblivious. They want me home, now, after everything. The unfairness of it makes my skin prickle all over and the palms of my hands turn hot. The bus chooses that moment to enter its bay and I get on. I'm so angry that I cast my blinding hex too strongly. Only instead of throwing the driver backwards, it makes the entire bus shudder. I hunch myself up in a seat and wrap my arms around myself, waiting for the drunk girls to stagger on and tumble into seats. The words my mum wrote for the paper won't leave me alone. It's like they've bored into my eyes and are chewing their way into my brain. They love me. They want me home. And for the first time since they kicked me out, I can't go back. If I get off the bus now and go home, I'll be taking the power I took from the 40 shades right into my parents' lives. I don't even know how much power I have, only that it keeps jumping out at me. They might be able to understand a few months of homelessness or even losing my virginity to another runaway. But telling them about magic, about demons and fetches and the fact that I have blood on my hands. No. I'd have to hide it from them, and right now I can't see any way of doing that. Not if I can't stop magic leeching out of me. I'm not even allowing myself to think about what the shade within Sophia said about the witches it had sacrificed. That they were descendants of other shades from the astral plane, worshipped as ancient goddesses and gods. I can't handle thinking about that right now. The bus pulls up at the campus, and as soon as I'm off I hurry to Wayward. Part of me expects to see Ilex and Chronicles slobbing around in the living room when I climb in the window. But there's no one there. No sign of anyone either. The statue has gone cold, as though the glamour on it vanished along with my fellow witches. Gray's playing cards are on the table, and I pick them up carefully, taking them upstairs with me. Sophia's room is the same as I remember it, draped in old sheets and bits of velvet, every surface covered in hair products, makeup, cheap figurines of mythical creatures and crystals. Last time I was in here, I thought it was just her being a scene, but now I look at the clutter as something else, a shade pretending to be a teenager. It's too dark to see properly, so I pull down one of the old curtains pinned up over the window letting in some weak sunlight. She, it, had to be keeping a grimoire somewhere. There's no sign of it at first, though I tear the room apart trying to find it. By the time I'm done, the sunlight coming through the window has strengthened enough to light up the dusty air. There are draperies all over the floor, half wrapped around broken figurines and mirrors. I've thrown books off of piles after flipping through them looking for some signs of Sophia's writing. They're all just cheap books on witchcraft, the kind you get in shops that sell romance novels, five for a pound. I turn the tables over and look underneath, in case the grimoire's taped there. I do the same thing with Sophia's chair, and unzip all the cushions to feel inside. Finally, I pull up the rug in the centre of the room and feel around the floorboards, looking for a loose one. Nothing. No sign of the grimoire. If I hadn't heard Ilex talking about it, I'd be doubting its existence. Of course, now I know that Ilex wasn't even real, I can't be sure his memories were either. I kick out a pile of glossy coffee table books and shout in frustration. A draught makes the window behind me rattle, and the door to the room slams closed, making me jump. Behind it, hidden in a corner, is a tiny fireplace probably left from before the house was split into smaller rooms. Given how long I managed to keep my stash hidden from my parents, I know a good hiding place when I see one. I kneel down by the fireplace and look up into the dark space. The wind moans down the chimney. There's something sticking out. It comes away from the bricks in a snarl of electrical tape when I pull on it. It's a book. One of those big leather-bound ledgers you get from W.H. Smith's that costs a bomb. 
It's wrapped in a plastic bag, which I take off before flipping through the pages eagerly. About halfway through the ledger, I realise that it's just like my own notebook, full of things about ritual tools and raising energy. Nothing like the specific spells in the other grimoire. It must be the one Ilex was talking about when he told me he and Chronicle had special lessons from it. I'm about to drop the book in despair when I notice how bulky the back of it is. I grab a rhinestone-covered athme and use it to slit the cover. Pushed between the cardboard backing and the leather is another blue exercise book. Flicking through, I pause on the page marked to make a skeleton key. One of the few ingredients listed is the finger bone of a thief. I shudder, remembering Ilex's skeleton key, the one he used to get us into the halls of residence. Had that really been a human bone? A few pages later is a note relating to conjuring powder, that to call up the Fae to help you to take things, you need the bones of one with sight. Underneath that is the list of the kind of people blessed with the ability to see fairies. Top of that list? Unbaptized children. I helped to grind up a batch of that powder. Crush the tiny bones with a granite pestle. Baby bones. Is this the power I've taken for myself? Is this the knowledge that Sophia's shade was hoarding? If so, then I didn't want it. I want to go back and stop myself from making that powder, from eating the food we traded for. I try to imagine what it was like for Sophia, whether she was conscious of the things she was doing under the influence of possession. I wonder if the shade dug up the bones it needed from one of the many graveyards in Bath, or even the one in the village or whether it thought nothing of taking lives in pursuit of stronger magic. I don't want to keep looking at the book. I don't want to find out how Cray was made. I'm not sure I can take it if the person I love was born out of someone's suffering in death. Still my hands turn the pages. I need him back. But the idea of how much it'll cost is making my heart heavy. Halfway through the slim book, there's a handwritten version of the fetch ritual that I performed to make my own. On the opposite page is the same ritual, but with large portions of new directions added between the steps. There are substitutions next to crossed out ingredients. The incense that represents air has been replaced with a mixture of herbs and hair. Human hair. I frown as I read through the ritual. Why would the shade use Sophia's hair? I read that hair was linked with the thoughts, and so with thought control. If it was being used to represent air as it was here, that meant it was definitely connected with the thoughts of the person who... I reread the ingredients list. Nowhere does it say that the witch's own hair is used. A chill prickles up my spine, and even though I know I'm alone in the room, I look up all the same. Hair. Human hair to bring thoughts to a fetch. An ingredient that couldn't be taken from a dead body. Thoughts were living things, not held on to after death. The shade had clipped hair from a living person. Likewise, with a ritual called for blood to represent water and emotions, a heart to represent fire and passion, and a hand to tie the whole to the physical plane, to earth. Those were not things that could be taken from a dead body. A note at the bottom of the page says, To give life, life must be given. All of them had lived. Their thoughts, their passions and emotions had once belonged to living people. To remake them as witches, she cut out their hearts, severed their hands, and performed her ritual to tie their spirits to her cloth replicas, their bodies, magical ones of spelled skin that she could take away as easily as snuffing out a candle. I feel the hope drain out of me as I take in the full meaning of the ritual. There is no way to get Cray back. Even if I could find his body, his real body, even if I could bring myself to find and open his grave, taking his hair and hand would be useless when there was no heart left to use and no blood to take. Even if there was, it wouldn't be the same. The magic wouldn't work. I sit down on the dusty floor and drop the grimoire. I can't bear touching it a moment longer. Without the drive of my desperation to revive Cray, I crumple, the full weight of the last 24 hours crashing down on me. 
Cray is dead. Campion, Ilex, Nara and Chronicle are dead. Sophia is dead. I am the one who killed her. I have killed a shade from another world and absorbed its power. There isn't a person in the world that I can turn to with this. No one who can tell me what it means to possess the power of one full-blooded shade and 39 shade descendants. I am completely alone. Something trembles in my pocket, like my phone's on vibrate. I'm already reaching for it when I remember that I binned my phone days ago. I pull out the piece of fabric that was once the face of Cray's Vetch. Inside it, the crystals that Sophia used for eyes are shivering with power. Two of the black crystals jump from my palm and skitter across the floor. I get to my feet and go to pick them up, but they escape my fingers and roll out the door. I follow them, half hoping it's Cray leading me. The crystal rolls against the closed bathroom door and stops. As soon as I open the door, they roll inside and come to rest in the corner, right beside Campion's old saucepan, the cauldron that she'd used to make the mistletoe brew. Cray? The stones jump into the pan and rattle around. Is that you? The rattling intensifies, wobbling the pan across the boards. I pick it up and the crystal's still as if they are waiting. The cauldron? I don't understand. The ritual in Sophia's book doesn't even mention a cauldron. The stones jump inside the pan. I don't know what you're trying to tell me, I snap. I don't even know who you are and now you're... My mouth twists downwards and I start to cry. Embarrassing, gulpy sobs. Cray is gone and I can't get him back. If it wasn't for me asking questions and poking around where I wasn't wanted, Sophia would have had no reason to kill him. I know that means that I'd have gone to Bristol and been murdered, but maybe that would have been better. After all, I'm related to a shade, somehow. Cray was just some kid who got killed because Sophia needed his parts for a spell. He might as well have been a sacrificial lamb. Now I'm being haunted by something that might be Cray's spirit, trying to work out what he wants from me and what that has to do with an old pan. Cauldron. Same difference, I say aloud, before realising that it was the voice again, Keridwen's voice. What does it mean? It's my cauldron, where wisdom and knowledge were born. The potion from the story Campion told me. The one that Keridwen ordered to be made to give her son wisdom. Three drops would give you knowledge, but any more would kill you. Cray had told me the rest of the story. That the blind man Keridwen ordered to stir the potion burnt his thumb when some splashed on it. He put it in his mouth and received the wisdom Keridwen had intended for her son. Enraged, the goddess chased him, and though he changed forms many times, he could not outrun her. Finally, he became an ear of corn, and Keridwen changed herself into a hen and ate him. Cray said that the power couldn't be destroyed, so after Keridwen ate him, she gave birth to another son, which was the blind man reincarnated. Do you see now the cauldron of wisdom? That was how I'd seen it referred to, but, but hadn't Cray called it something else? The cauldron of rebirth. I turn the pan in my hands, thinking, inside me, the place where the voice of Keridwen comes from is tense, expectant, like a teacher waiting for an answer from a stupid pupil. Well, I'm not stupid. I figured out what the fetches were. I escaped Sophia. I can work this out. The ritual in the grimoire is to create a fetch from a spirit. The spirit takes physical form and the spell ties it to the fabric copy. When Sophia destroyed the fetch, was the spirit destroyed too? From the way its eyes led me here, I'd say something of Cray is still hanging around. Apparently, I'm not going to get any more help from Keridwen. I'm on my own. Each time I've done magic, I've been following someone else's directions. Cray's, Campion's, even Sophia's. All the spells and rituals were from their grimoires, but now their books can't give me what I want. I look through all of them, feeling like the worst kind of heartless bitch. Nara's written about her dreams, Chronicle about her past, and Ilex has written a spell in cramped handwriting to make himself normal. 
They've let their demons out in those pages, but I can't respect their privacy as long as Cray's trapped somewhere else. Once or twice I have to stop my frantic page turning as a line jumps out at me. Prayers and observations scribble down fast, like the person doesn't want to think about them. God and goddess, please help me stop drinking so much. I hate how they look at me. I wish I could go back and shake myself awake and tell myself that one day I'd have the power to destroy him. Keridwen, I had a dream about you and Michaela. I don't know what it means, but it was good. It felt right. Please don't let her get hurt. I know something's wrong. Cray wrote those words. I sit back and look at his scratchy handwriting. He cared about me, enough to ask the goddess to look after me. I wonder what he dreamt about. I have to stop myself reading more. I can read his grimoire a hundred times, and I will if it's the only part of him left, but if there's the tiniest chance that I can have him back, I'm not going to waste any more time. There's no spell in the grimoire, but that doesn't mean I can't write my own. It's not easy. Once I start, I can't stop writing until my spell sounds less like magic and more like begging. I rip up the pages and try again, till I have one page with what sounds like a fairly decent spell on it. It's a spell I know very well might kill me. My new power is too strong for me to gauge. It scares me, but I have to try. Since I sat down to read the notebook, my head's been throbbing with the start of a headache. I have to keep rubbing my temples as I look for the right herbs and crystals that are mixed with Nara and Campion's stuff. It feels right to do the spell in the room we shared, and I lay Cray's clothes on the floor ready for him. A dark green shirt and a pair of jeans that he must have glamoured into countless things. They're old and worn through at the knees, marked all over with dirt. Sophia must have taken his things when she killed him and brought them so he'd have something to wear. Howard Cray appeared the first time. In Sophia's grimoire, it said to bury the heart, hair and hand under a yew tree, watering them with the blood. Had she gone back and dug up the body formed from his spirit? Had she let him dig his way out and come to her? I make the cloth double that will contain my spell once it's complete. It's nowhere near what Sophia and her shade put together. Just one of Cray's socks with herbs for healing and rebirth stuffed inside with some blank pages from his grimoire. I've drawn his face on it and pinched one of his playing cards in two hair grips, the King of Hearts, attaching it to the arms I've made from the cord tying off the head shape. It's not a work of art, but it'll have to do. At last I have all the ingredients ready. The only thing I don't have is mistletoe, which Campion told me had to be cut fresh. That means waiting until it's day so I can go out to the woods and find some. I need it to recreate Keridwen's cauldron. Here, the cauldron rattles, and from the dented base, between the black crystals, sprouts a long green stem. It spreads as it grows, until there's a perfect sprig of mistletoe growing from the pot, its berries glowing slightly like pearls. It's you, isn't it? I say. You're the shade of my family. There's no answer, but I'm not surprised. I know there's only one reason Keridwen would be helping me, without me so much as casting a circle or praying to her. I think about the story of the potion, how the blind man stirring it splashed someone himself, and accidentally stole its power. Keridwen ate him and gave birth to a son. Was that the start of my family line? I shake my head. I can't think of that now. I need to save Cray. That's all I want, to bring him back. Chronicle taught me that the body is made of the five elements, air, water, fire, earth, and spirit. The potion I've made so far is almost the same as the one Campion made, Keridwen's cauldron, the cauldron of rebirth. I've added you to represent the birth of Cray's last body, mistletoe for its rebirth. The crystals that were his eyes are contributing the spirit part of the ritual. The rest of the elements will have to come from me. In the original spell, hair, a heart, blood and a hand were taken from Cray's living body to create a new one, capable of using magic. Body formed from Cray's spirit. Living flesh is what will make him again. The pot boils on the stove as I summon up my memories of Cray. A lock of my hair transfers those thoughts to the potion. Air. 
Steam rises in a thick sheet, twisting down over the clothes on the floor. I hear someone sucking in a breath, as if they're in the room with me. Hope makes my hand shake, but I manage to prick my finger and squeeze a few drops of blood into the pot, sending my love, my grief, my hope with it. Water. Keeper of emotions. I watch the clothes on the floor for signs that the spell is working, but aside from my own blood pounding in my ears, nothing's changing. I hold my breath as I go on, forcing myself to remember every moment that I've known Grey. From the bus station cafe to the Yule Ball, to the last glimpse of him I took in the abandoned house. I can't hack out my own heart, but I can break it, and maybe that's enough. All my passion, the ferocity of my need to have him back. Fire. It must do something. The pot shivers and the potion seems to solidify for a second, twitching like a living thing before bubbling like before. The circle sings with power. It's working, it has to be. I look into the murky, roiling water. Even with the energy humming around me, I almost back down. What comes next, when it popped into my mind as I wrote the spell, scares me. There might be a substitute for a human heart, but there's none for flesh. I can feel him, though, as if he's in the room already. One more element to go. Earth. I reach across and push my hand into the boiling potion. A scream bursts out of me as the scalding liquid touches my skin. My hand feels burning hot, then frozen, then scorching again. I bite my lips so hard that blood fills my mouth and my eyes water helplessly. I screw my eyes closed and see the white lights inside me buzzing around like a hive of bees. They grow brighter and brighter and the red orb, the shade's energy, feels like it's burning a hole right through me. Before, working magic always felt like gathering energy close before shaping and releasing it. I've been the one in control. I'm not in control anymore. The power rips through me as if I'm just a piece of copper, a conductor for the white-hot energy pouring out of me and into the potion. The pot is shaking. The steam is rising thicker and thicker, shining like a cloud in front of the sun. It falls over the clothes on the floor, and the whole room shudders. A high-pitched whine fills my ears. My hair stands up on end. I open my mouth to scream, but only light comes out. The buzzing of the energy rises to a roar, and I can't move to break the circle, or even to take my hand out of the boiling water. My skin feels like molten metal. I give up the struggle and prepare to die as the last of the power flies free and I fall into a heap on the floor. I hope you've enjoyed today's chapter and just a reminder, it would really help out and help support me and the podcast if you would go over to Amazon and pay 99p for the ebook of Wayward or if you'd like to buy a different book, uh, you can also buy Dead to Rights, which is my other witch-themed ebook over there as well and I have written a number of other novels which are not witch related but which I think are still quite good and are 99p each so um, I'm sure you'll find something that you'll like and it would really help me out and help me to keep doing the podcast as well in the meantime I hope you enjoy this episode and I'll see you in the next one